Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. We're in Matthew uh, chapter 5, and we are at verse 38. So as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus describes his kingdom and the rule of his kingdom. And for, for those of us who are citizens of that kingdom, uh, what our conduct should be. And so he emphasizes early on in this chapter that um, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so he then goes on to describe what that looks like, what that means in our practical everyday life. And as you go through this, you can't help but sense how revolutionary this teaching is in his day. But if you're honest with, with yourself, it's revolutionary in our day as well. And so we want to consider what he has to say this morning um, in, in our section. So the current section uh, includes verses 21 through 48. And in that section, we have six contrasts. Each section begins with a similar uh, phrase that is this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, and then the Lord teaches us what the law really means and how it applies when he says, but I say to you. And so there are six sections like that in these verses. We've already covered the first four and today we will study the fifth. Next week, um, I believe uh, Daniel is, is going to complete uh, the, the sixth of the six um, comparisons. So our, our verses today are Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away." So Jesus is referring here to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And in that law, it's, he, he quotes this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So there are three sections in the Old Testament law that refer to this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I want to look at them this morning just briefly and then move on to what, uh, how we should live uh, in light of this. So the first one is found in Exodus 21, 22 through 27. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And so I want to emphasize that at this moment because this is clearly a court of law and the judges of this court are listening to the case and are determining the sentence that should be um, handed out to this, um, for, for this crime. <clears throat> but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So this is actually a good law for the courts to follow. It regulates the, that the punishment for the crime must fit the crime. No more, no less. It's equal punishment for the crime that was uh, committed. And so it's a righteous law. It protects the innocent party. 
and it makes sure that the sentence that is enacted against the criminal is not over the top. It does not exceed the original crime. Now, you've probably noticed in the last two verses that I just read that uh, is the case of a servant that if his eye was injured or his tooth was knocked out, um, the judges were not to injure the eye of the master nor knock the tooth out of the master, but instead an equivalent sentence was uh, provided, and it was a sentence of grace for the one who was injured. He was to go free. Wow. Come on, knock my tooth out. <laughs> but, I mean, it really was a, uh, an equal um, or even greater compensation for the crime that had been committed. Again, I want to emphasize, it was for the judges to determine. The second reference is found in Leviticus 24, 17 through 20. It says, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. So there you have life for life. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And so once again, the law was applied equally. In, in this case, if you read the context, um, it was applied equally to foreigners living among the Jews as well as those who were native-born citizens. It was a fair and just punishment to fit the crime. It was equal punishment for the crime. The third reference we don't have time to look at this morning, but it has to do with a situation where somebody is falsely accusing another person of um, a crime. And the desire of this false uh, witness is to come and make sure that this person, this other person is punished and has his tooth knocked out or his eye gouged out or his hand cut off or whatever it happens to be that he's looking for. And in this passage in Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21, he goes through all of these details. Um, the point is, this guy is trying to impose a sentence or have the courts impose a sentence on a person that did not commit a crime. And in this particular case, the Lord says, if this person is found to be a false witness, then you are to do to him what he was demanding to be done of the innocent party. So if he was looking to have his, the guy's hand cut off, cut off this guy's hand. If it was his foot, a foot for a foot, eye for an eye, and so on. And so those are the three major portions of the scripture that talk about this kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth uh, sentencing. In all three of these scriptures, these are portions of the law that we know as the law of retribution. It's like um, the law was given so that the punishment was neither too lenient and it was not too extreme. In no way in the passage in Matthew is the Lord Jesus overthrowing this law. He is not. In fact, he says earlier in this passage in Matthew that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So the law itself is valid, and it's righteous in a court of law. And judges, even today, should enforce judgments that are neither too lenient nor too excessive. The New Testament teaches us that God has established these governing authorities over us um, to uphold the law as a deterrent to further evil. And so I'm just going to reference uh, one of these passages in Romans 13, and I'm going to read the whole section 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore... You must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So in Matthew, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord is not overthrowing this law. He is actually, um, it's, it's a, an honest rule of law. Um, it's an impartial judicial system, and it's punishment for evil behavior. It's the courts that are to enact this kind of punishment. So in a court of law, we can say that it's right, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But that's not what Jesus is speaking about. He's not referencing the court system here. He's referencing personal behavior because he says, but I say to you, and he's emphasizing how we as individual citizens of his kingdom should live. And it's not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's not that we seek personal vengeance or revenge. And that's what the rest of this passage has to do with. Should I retaliate? Should I seek revenge? Should I, should I live by the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And Jesus says, no, that's not how we are to live as believers. The Lord teaches us in verses 39 through 42 that there is a better way to live. And this teaching is revolutionary. How many times in your life have you been hit? Has somebody struck you? What is your natural tendency when somebody hits you? Punch right back. Okay, go get training so that you're even better at it next time. Hit back harder. And it starts at the earliest age. As soon as a child is hit, their immediate reaction is to strike back. That's, that's inbred in us. How many of you have ever been taken to court or have been sued in court? What is your natural desire? Your natural desire is that the lawsuit will backfire and the one attacking you will lose his shirt, right? Nobody's shaking their head. How many of you have had evil done to you? What is your hope when evil is done to you? Is your hope that the person will get what they deserve? Okay? We have these phrases in the English language. I hope he gets what he deserves. And what we mean by that is that we, we actually aren't satisfied in our own minds that the person gets exactly what he gave to me. Someone once said that what we want is a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. We want him to be punished even greater, in a greater way, than we have suffered. Our society today is one of the most litigious societies in the world. Lawyers who represent individuals are not satisfied with reasonable settlements for crimes that have been committed or, or for losses that have been incurred. They look to sue those with deep pockets for million-dollar settlements or multi-million-dollar awards. And many of us have been influenced in, by our greed, by our society, and by the idea of standing up for our rights no matter what the cost. We want to personally retaliate. We want revenge. And yet Jesus in this passage is teaching us a better way. I have stated many times from this pulpit that if I got what I deserved... And we, we talked about it this morning in the Lord's Supper. If I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. That's what I deserve. And if the Lord had taken vengeance on me, I would not be here this morning. The reason that any of us are sitting here this morning listening to the word of God is because, and not in hell is because he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The Bible says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the question for us this morning is this. What if Jesus had acted like us? What if instead of going to the cross and suffering for our sin, he had retaliated against those who were taking him there? What if he refused to give his back to the smiters? What if he had called instead 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free? What if he had, had simply acted towards us as we wish to act towards others? It's clear that if I got what I truly deserved for my crimes against the Lord, I would be in the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's true of all of us here. Instead, I can say, for by grace, I am saved. It's because of what he did for us. He took our place. He suffered for crimes that I had committed. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look at this passage about him, uh, as he teaches here in Matthew uh, chapter 5, it almost sounds like, like he is um, weak. Jesus was not weak. When it came to uh, representing his father and, and the, the rights of his father being worshipped and adored, he was a lion. He overturned the uh, money changers' tables and cast them out of the temple. He rebuked evil that was um, propagated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and pronounced woes on the lawyers for the wickedness. He was a lion when it came to the things of God. But when it came to his own personal, uh, or when it came to him being personally attacked, he was a lamb before his shears. He was silent. He opened not his mouth. He did not retaliate. When he was struck, he did not strike back. And even on the cross, when two thieves are railing at him, they're all suffering the punishment of crucifixion, and they're, they're more interested in condemning him for what he had done, one of them finally repented and said, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Jesus did not respond by saying, may you rot in hell for what you have done in your, in your life. He, gave, he demonstrated grace even from the cross. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He looked at the crowds and the people in particular who, were, who had nailed him to the cross, crucified him, and he cried out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the better way, and the Lord wants us to follow, to walk in his footsteps. In 1 Peter 2, 21, it says this, For to you, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Well, let's take a look at the verses. Verse 39, first part of it, it says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. I think we read an expanded uh, version of this in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I want to tell you, I'll be completely honest, completely frank with you. To live this way is not natural for me. It just simply isn't natural for me. And I want to tell you that I am still under construction. But the Lord has allowed things to take place in my life to teach me to live this way. About 10 years ago, we decided to sell our publishing uh, business. We actually had three companies that uh, offered to buy our company. And in the end, two of the companies agreed to terms of purchase. A contract was drawn up, and uh, all the parties signed the agreement. And it was our obligation to immediately fulfill our end of the agreement, which we did. And we trusted them to fulfill their side of the agreement over a period of six years. But after just a few months, both companies breached the contract, resulting in an enormous loss to us personally. We appealed to them initially to honor their word, but instead they chose to do evil rather than good. What was I to do, you ask? I was totally unexpected. Uh, It was totally unexpected. How should I respond to this? My natural tendency is to fight for my rights. When I press charges, what they did was illegal. Would I take them to court? The teaching from Scripture is plain, where Paul rebukes believers at Corinth for doing exactly that, taking other believers to court. And he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. In other words, you're you're wanting unbelievers to judge this case. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? And in light of these verses, Kristen and I discussed this. What do we do? And it's plain. Let yourself be cheated. Let them have whatever they have. Let yourself be cheated. And that's what we chose to do. We did not resist evil, but allowed ourselves to be defrauded. And you cry out, well, that's, that's unfair. It's totally wrong. But so was what happened to Joseph wrong when he was maligned by his brothers and he was thrown into a pit and he was sold as a slave to Egypt and he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and he was thrown into prison and he was forgotten in prison. And yet God used the circumstances in Joseph's life to raise him to be second in command of all of Egypt and to be a savior, in a sense, to the the Jews, his own family who had betrayed him. But it was not enough for us to just learn this lesson. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, praying for those who crucified him on the cross. Can I ask the Lord to forgive them for his sake? Can I respond like Joseph and see that although they meant it for evil, God meant it for good? How did he treat um, his own brothers when he exposed himself to them and just told them who he was? He treated them with kindness. He treated them with love. He treated them with forgiveness. And that is one more step the Lord was teaching us. You must go beyond just simply accepting this, but forgiving them and praying for them. And so he wants to change my heart, my character, my responses, my life. The law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but the Lord is showing us a better way. And the remaining verses, he gives us four examples of a better way. So in verse 30, the second half of verse 39, do not retaliate or seek revenge if you are struck on the cheek. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Have you ever been slapped on the face? It is completely disrespectful. It's dishonoring, it's insulting, and whether we are physically slapped or we are verbally slapped, our king tells us not to retaliate. 
Seeking revenge is our natural response, but the Lord teaches us a better way. Jesus gave his back to the smiters. He gave himself to those who plucked out his beard. He did not defend himself. When Jesus stood before the high priest, one of the officers struck him on the face, and Jesus replied, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? So there's nothing wrong with asking the question, why are you doing this? Why are you doing evil? But he did not strike him back. He did not defend himself. He spoke out against the wrongdoing, but he did not retaliate. When Joseph's life was threatened by his brothers and he was cast into the pit, he did not defend himself. When he was sold into slavery, he did not defend himself. He did not resist evil. When he was falsely accused, he did not retaliate. He recognized ultimately that God meant it for good. Probably a year or so ago, we had, her name is Hannah, and uh, she came to book our house, uh, and uh, she wanted to, to rent for, I, I forget how many days, but several days, and um, she came in and she used a fraudulent credit card, and she um, was doing evil, and we recognized that something was going on, and we... Um, confronted her about that, and she quickly left with the people that were in the house with her and um, uh, stole a bunch of stuff on their way out, and we again appealed to her to bring the things back and to pay her bill, and she refused to do so. My natural tendency is to fight her and to go after what belongs to me, and so you can see that I'm very weak, right? And so the, um, I did write to her a letter asking her to do the right thing, and she refused to do so. And so we were out several thousand dollars in um, both, things, both rent as well as things that she stole. And then I, I, I looked at her situation and I thought, you know what, this is a, a woman who needs the Lord. She is so desperate in her life. She needs the Lord. And I chose not to pursue her, not to pursue what was rightfully mine, instead to write her a letter that the Lord wants to save her from her sins. And that what she has done is clearly sin, but that the Lord wants to save her soul, to forgive her sins and so on. I don't know what's happened to her to this day. I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea. But this was being struck on the cheek and turning the other cheek to her. Recently, um, in July of this year, I came face to face with an angry mob in my own home. We had guests staying at the house that we actually had to evict for cause. And they literally surrounded me. Um, I mean, there was a gang of them surrounding me in my kitchen and uh, with angry voices and shouts, they threatened me and ridiculed me and slandered me. And they called me every vile name that you can think of and began to be destructive to my home as I was standing there. They were destroying parts of my home. And they called me terrible names. They surrounded me. And I really, I, I had this sense at the time as, as they were, I, I said, man, I, I was having this conversation with myself in my head. I feel like a lamb in the midst of wolves. That's how I felt. And uh, I was verbally trashed. I was not physically struck, thankfully. But I didn't respond to them in kind. I did not verbally attack them. I did not return evil for evil. And I simply turned the other cheek. When they left, I prayed for them that the Lord would save their souls as well. And as the Lord brings them to my mind again and again, I pray for them and ask the Lord that he might bring them to repentance, bring them to the point where they see their need of a Savior and turn to him. And as I think about them and I think about what they did, I think about my condition before the Lord. 
and how I was towards him. I was no different than this vile crowd. I was no different. And I remember that if I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. And it is my prayer that the Lord will save them as he saved me and will bring them into heaven as well. The second thing that the Lord speaks about here in verse 40, do not seek revenge if you are sued. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Recently, I was speaking to a a Christian couple and I was telling them the story of, um, a story about my dad. After my mom's death uh, four years ago, I went up to Canada to, with the purpose of helping my dad. Uh, he was suffering the loss of my mom, and I wanted to help him at his workplace um, in his cabinet business. And I had run the business decades ago, so I was very familiar with the, uh, the processes and the business and all the rest of it, and so I thought I could be of some help to him. But when I was there, I sensed that there was something terribly, terribly wrong. And I said to dad, I said, there's something going on here. And I said, I don't think it's good. I want to investigate further. And so with my two sisters, we began to investigate. We began to look at the books and began to look at what was going on in the business. And um, we uncovered the awful truth that a number of dad's employees had been stealing funds from the company, and it amounted to about a quarter of a million dollars. And I had to break the news to dad. I said, dad, your company is on the verge of bankruptcy. I said, I don't think there's any way to recover what has gone on here. And uh, at 87 years old at that time, He was essentially starting over. Dad had no choice, ultimately, a few months later, he had to file bankruptcy. And as I was telling the story to this couple, the husband said to me, well, why didn't he just sue them? (laughs) And as I thought about the question, I had to admit that that would be my natural response, too. It it sounded so bad coming from him, but I had to admit, I, I would think the same way. Why didn't he just sue them? And uh, go to court, fight for your rights, keep as much of what is rightfully yours, get back from them what they stole from you. But as Dad and I discussed the situation, there was a verse that struck both of us, and that the Lord really taught us a better way. In Hebrews 10, 34, it says, For you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. And dad had to make a choice whether to go to court or not go to court. And he chose not to. And he, he chose to allow them to take everything. What he had built over a 40-year period went down the drain in an afternoon. But dad went beyond that, and he began to pray for them. And he still does to this day. He says, I pray for them every day. And not that the Lord would have vengeance on them. That's not what he's praying. He's praying that the Lord would save their souls. That the Lord would bring to their attention the evil that they have committed. And that they might recognize that their sin ultimately is against God. Not against him, but against God. It is against him too, but it's ultimately against God. He refuses to die a bitter old man. He refuses to do that. Instead, he continues to pray for those who took advantage of him. By his grace, in the whole process of this event, um, he was actually able to save his own house. In other words, it was not taken from him. That was not part of the um, bankruptcy proceedings. But there was still a debt of $197,000 on the house. Now, you have to realize my dad was 87 years old at the time. He, had, he was no longer employed. He is unemployable at 87. And he had no income apart from a tiny social security check each month. And so my two sisters and I began to pray with dad, and we asked the Lord to provide for his needs. The auction of all of the stuff from the business came up and I approached the auctioneer and the trustee and I said, is it legal for me 
to bid on some of the things that are being sold. They said, sure, it's a we're, we're a third party. You have nothing to do with us. Anybody can bid whatever they want to, and it goes to the highest bidder. I said, okay, count me in. I'm going to start bidding on some of, the, some of the stuff that they're selling off. And so when the auction came, I purchased a, a bunch of stuff, and my goal was to simply take the stuff that I purchased and immediately flip it and to give the proceeds to dad and that he could put it towards his house debt. We literally filled his garage, my sister's garage, uh, from floor to ceiling, as wide as the garage was, full of stuff. And I then exited and I came back to California where I could live a peaceable life. And my sisters were left to take pictures of all this stuff, and I mean, I helped them with some of that, and to post it online and to start selling off all of these things. And um, so immediately the big things were, were flipped and, and the proceeds went to dad, and then day by day they began to take pictures and sell these things online, and the Lord brought buyers, and soon we began to see his debt coming down. The interesting thing is many of the people who bought items came and said, why are you selling this stuff? And my sisters would tell the story of how my dad uh, had to go into bankruptcy, how uh, he was robbed, or, and, and how um, we were trying to make payment for his house. And people had compassion on dad, and they recognized that it was an evil that occurred to him. And they said, you know what, we've got stuff in our garage. Now here are people buying things that have things in their garage that they want them to sell so that they can give to my father. The pastor of my sister's church said, I want you to tell this story at church one Sunday morning to, to show the congregation about forgiveness and, and uh, prayer. And so she told the story. And people throughout the church said, we're not going to give money. Well, we've got stuff in our closets. We've got stuff in our garage. We've got stuff in our sheds. Can you sell this and give it to your father? It's stuff that we, don't, we forget we even have. And so for the last three years, my sisters, day by day, would post these things and, and uh, sell these things. And in a period of three years, that debt is completely wiped away. My sisters and I celebrated the event in uh, this past summer. We took a picture of them sitting in the garage. It's the ugliest picture you could ever see. But the point was, the garage was almost empty at that point. We just visited Dad last week, and I walked into his garage. It's, it's bare. It's clean. I said, wow, this is really weird, <laughs> seeing this empty place here. This not only did it pay off his debt, but it freed Dad to do what he wanted to do, and that is to serve the Lord. And he, at 87, 88, 89, he's just turned 90 last weekend, and uh, he has devoted himself to ministering in a convalescent hospital where he shares the love of God with patients. And he recognizes that he is probably the last voice that these people will hear before they step into eternity. And uh, he joyfully accepted the plundering of his goods, knowing that he has a better and enduring possession for himself in heaven. The thieves took his tunic, shall we say, and he gave them his cloak also. But I'll tell you this, he is none the poorer for having done it. And I don't mean in financial way, but he's none the poorer for doing what he's done. More than that, he regularly and even daily prays for those who have done this to him, that, he might, that they might also turn to the Lord and be saved. In verse 41, it says, Do not resist what is required of you. It says, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. According to the Roman law, uh, a soldier could come to any citizen uh, in, uh, in, in the Roman Empire and force them um, to carry his pack for one mile. In, in, uh, in Rome, a mile was a thousand steps. And so I can imagine a soldier, it was a legal obligation, by the way. You had to do it. If a soldier came to you and, and gave you his pack, you were obligated by law to carry that pack for a Roman mile. Now, I can imagine that happening to me. I don't know if you can think about 
what you might do, what your reaction might be, but I can imagine what I might act like. Carry my bags for a mile. And I would obey the law, but I can imagine what my attitude might be. One, two, three, four, five, six. I hope you're hearing this. <laughs> you know, 999, 1,000, dump, right? And you give it back to him. That's all that was obligated. And um, that's the flesh speaking. But the Lord is showing us a better way. If you are compelled to go one mile, go with him too. The first mile is the law. The second mile is love. The first mile is because you have to. The second mile is because you want to. The first mile is by, com is by command. The second mile is by compassion. Can you imagine the look on the soldier's face who compelled you to take the backpack for a mile if in the first mile you actually did it joyfully? And instead of grumbling with each step and counting them out loud so he knew that you were, he was meeting the obligation, um, instead of that, you did it joyfully. And you talked with him along the way. And as you talked with him, you got to the end of your thousandth step, and you said, you know what, I'm going to go another mile with you. I tell you, I think that soldier would listen to whatever you had to say. Because that it would be so unusual, so radical, so revolutionary um, for you to go another mile. But what a, what a conversation starter that would be with him. Why are you continuing to carry my load, he might ask. And well, you might say, let me tell you about my Savior who bore my load of sin in his own body on the tree. What an opportunity for the gospel at that point. If he could do that for me then this light load that I am carrying is nothing if I have to carry it a mile or two miles or three or more. But let me ask you, you might say to the soldier, what about your burden of sin? Who's carrying that? Are you still carrying that heavy load? Or has Jesus taken that load from you? That's where the gospel goes with this. Go the second mile. You know, I remember um, when I was a young boy, uh, for some of you who are young, you, you probably won't understand what I'm saying because it's not like this anymore, but we actually had stores on a city block. There was no shopping malls. And there was a meat store, and there was a clothing store, and there was a bakery, and there was an ice cream store. They're all individual stores. Um, down through the block. And my mom would often send me up on Saturdays to go get um, treats at the bakery. And she'd say, go up there and get a dozen donuts. And so I'd go up to the store and I would go to the counter and I would pick 12 donuts because 12 donuts is a dozen. But the baker would always throw in one more donut. And I thought, does this guy not know how to count? You know, But they call it a baker's dozen. And it goes back in history, back to the 1200s, I, I believe, where people were be, felt they were being cheated by the bakers. And the bakers got around this by simply throwing in an extra portion, the 13th uh, portion of anything that was bought as a normal dozen. And it became known as the baker's dozen. It's going beyond the call of duty. And I think the person that is best known for this in the scripture, apart from the Lord Jesus, is the Good Samaritan, where he, he's a marvelous example of someone who went the extra mile and then some. And our lives should be characterized by this very same thing, by doing more than what is expected, by going beyond what is required, by going the extra mile. And by doing that, we are reflecting to the world what the Lord has done for us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The fourth thing the Lord says here is do not hold back from giving to others. In verse 42, it says, he says this, Give to him who asks you, 
And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Well, we come to this verse, and it's probably the hardest verse for us in some ways, because we come, all of us have encountered beggars uh, asking for a handout. And it, it generally makes us feel very awkward when we come across people like this. And part of the reason is that there are so many phonies out there. We lived in San Lorenzo many years ago, and our neighbor across the street, who lived in a perfectly good house, and, and it was paid for, was one of these beggars. It's not that he needed to do it, but this is how he made a living. He would go out and dress like a bum, and he'd go out on the street, and he'd beg every day, and that's how he earned his money. And so you become a little jaded when you see stuff like this. And so the situation is this, that a person is asking for help. Apparently, the request is either for money or it's for possessions. Since we are so prone to immediately think of the exceptions to this rule, let me just get them out of the way first. It is wise for us when somebody asks for money or asks for possessions or even to borrow to make sure there's a legitimate need. There's nothing wrong with that. If a person comes to me and asks me for um, money for a meal and he has alcohol on his breath, I'm not going to give him money. I've had this happen to me. And I've said, listen, let me take you across the street to the hamburger store here and I'll buy you a hamburger. And one guy actually said to me one time, hamburger? I don't need a hamburger. And he pulls out a wad of McDonald's certificates from his pocket. I can get a hamburger anytime I want. Just give me the money. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously. And he had alcohol on his breath. I mean, he was drunk. And um, so it's, it's wise to determine the, legitimate, the legitimacy of the need. Uh, if a person is under the influence of drugs... That money is going to go to evil purposes. We are under no obligation to enable their sin. It's doubtful that Jesus had in mind the person who was asking for money for another drink. But if someone has a legitimate need, and that's really what he's addressing here, and we have the means to give to that person, then we should be ready to assist. We should be looking for ways to assist that person. If a poor or needy person asks for help, we should not harden our hearts just because there are people out there who are like the first people I talked to. Jesus teaches us a better way, and it should reflect the attitude and character of our king who gave beyond measure to us. Generosity should really be a hallmark of those who are followers of Christ. Didn't I come to the Lord as a beggar? Didn't you? I think we all did. I didn't pray, Lord, please give me what I deserve, because had he answered that prayer, I'd be in hell. As a simple beggar, I asked the Lord, Lord, please be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Lord heard that prayer, and he gave me forgiveness of sins, he is, the scripture tells me, he is preparing a home for me in heaven. And he has set my feet upon a rock. He has given me so much over abundance. And in his grace, he hears prayers like that and he gives. I am still a beggar and I don't mind asking the Lord because he hears and he answers prayers. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, this is what we read. Ask. And it will be given to you. And so the Lord is really appealing to us to continue asking him for all of our needs. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread? Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. If we ask and he gives to us, he is demonstrating a better way. If we are asked and we give, 
we are following his example as well. Jesus said in Luke 6, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It's a very interesting principle in the scripture that it's, we often think that if we give to somebody, we're the losers. We've lost something. We don't have it anymore. But that's not the way it is in, in God's economy. We give to somebody and he gives us more that we might give more. It's an interesting principle that we see over and over again applied in the scripture. We're not giving to get for ourselves. We're giving that we might get to give more. And that's the principle that he's talking about here. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. So you then have more to give again. That's the idea. And so the Lord who is uh, so generous in his gifts to us is really saying to us, look, there's a better way. Be like me and give. Don't be looking to get, 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 looking to always satisfy our rights, but look to the needs of others. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't harden your heart um, to the needs around you. Don't think to yourself, well, they're in that condition. They deserve what they got. Think of how the Lord has treated you. And think of... Uh, and, and then demonstrate to others the grace of the Lord. The, it's interesting, the Philippian believers uh, were commended for their generous giving, for their, in fact, I think the word is hilarious giving um, that they gave uh, to Paul. And so I would just encourage you, rather than starting with strangers, start with people you know. Start looking for people who have legitimate needs and see how you might be able to uh, meet those needs. In Galatians chapter 6, and we'll end with this, verse 10, it says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we are struck once again with the, the revolutionary nature of your teaching. It's so contrary to everything that we think, that the world thinks, that... Um, we've been raised with and, and just the things that we see in the world, Lord. And we, we just want to pause and say, Lord, forgive us uh, for any area of our life where we are not living as you intend for us to live. And I pray, Lord, that the, the words that you have spoken, that we have looked at this morning, might really penetrate my heart and our hearts today, um, that we might live in a different way, a way that is pleasing to you, that it really is a reflection of your character and your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.